This week on the Parlay in All Blue, we center an extraordinary writer, a writer of fiction, especially short stories, a poet, and a fierce social critic and columnist, a tireless race woman whose activism championed black uplift, education, care for children, care for the poor, and women's suffrage, uh, a woman of unusual agency for any time, past, pre present, or future, who through her three marriages and at least three sustained relationships with women was fluid at a time when that term was only confined to hydration. Alice Dunbar Nelson was born in Louisiana during Reconstruction. She received her college degree at age 17 from Strait University, now Dillard University, when there were only 30 other black women who'd completed bachelor's studies in the, at the university level in the United States. Again, this is just after uh, bondage, just after the Civil War and Reconstruction. She published her first uh, work of short stories at age 20. She would survive a tumultuous marriage with the poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar. She would become an influential educator, a pioneer in the women's club movement who worked with Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells, W.E.B. Du Bois, Arturo Schomburg. She accompanied James Weldon Johnson to the White House to uh, petition President Harding about an anti-lynching bill. She was a powerhouse who lived a complete life professionally and as an activist and as a full and complex human being. Our guest this week, Dr. Tara T. Green, the class distinguished professor and chair of the African American Studies Department at the University of Houston, joins us to talk to talk about her exquisitely written book, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Now, Dr. Green is also a Dillard alum, so you know she's on point. We urge you to listen, uh, and thank you for listening. If you're here, you're already listening. Thank you. Like this episode, discuss it with others, especially this one. We think it's a great book uh, to, to read, not just as an individual, but also in um, reading circles and reading groups. Share this episode with others. Uh, please leave us a rating wherever you get your podcast. It helps others to find our show. You can also support us by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. The link is in the bio on any of our social media pages. Thank you and welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Tara Green, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I am so glad that you are here um, because I have so much to talk about and so much that I want to ask you. But I want to, to start with just if someone had said that I have a novel, a work of fiction, that's about a mixed race woman who's highly intelligent and highly ambitious, who's physically alluring to her contemporaries, male and female, who's an activist for black rights and women's rights 
and that is an insightful critic on issues of class and the struggles of the poor, who also moves in the circles of some of the most influential people of her time, including uh, visiting the the White House uh, to do activist work, who also defies marital norms, not just once, but multiple times, who's also sexually fluid, having long-term and passionate relationships with both men and women, while being a part of a movement that extols the virtues of reputable living and being upright, all of this in a way that that does not, you're not going to feel like you're reading about someone who's a hypocrite or that this is a contradiction, that this is just a complex person. I would say, wow, this is somebody has quite an imagination, but you have penned a biography, the very real biography of Alice Dunbar Nelson. And your book is titled Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. And she is someone who did so much and who would you would think that more people would know about her, but not a lot of people do. As I've talked, I've been talking about her in this book now for the last month, and I'm sure people are just like, we we get it or what have you. When did you uh, become aware of Alice Dunbar Nelson and why did you want to write about her? Well, thank you for having me here and for reading the biography. I really appreciate that. So I was introduced to Alice Dunbar Nelson, or sometimes I like to say I met Alice Dunbar Nelson at Dillard University, my alma mater, which is also her alma mater, straight college became Dillard University. I met her there in a classroom in New Orleans, in a literature classroom. I think it may have been an American literature classroom. I'm not even sure what I read by her. I just remember how her work made me feel as someone who had grown up in the suburbs of New Orleans and did not know anything at all about this woman. And had it not been for the fact that I attended that particular HBCU, I might still not know anything about her work. Yeah. And so what's what's so striking for, for me and our show, we have spent a lot of time in Louisiana this year, so to speak, metaphorically, where we did an episode on Reconstruction. We also did an episode on what it means to be Creole. We did the episode uh, around the German Coast Rebellion. And while she wasn't directly involved in any of those episodes, but I kept coming across either an essay by her about, you know, New Orleans history or black people in New Orleans or free people of color in New Orleans. And then I started reading her short, some of her short stories. And as I was Googling to get another, you know, book of hers, I came across your book and, you know, so, so here we are. Now, when I gave that introduction about the, extraordinary life that she lived and very complex life that she lived. The one thing that I didn't say in the introduction that I think is also true is that it seems like I would be talking about someone who is in the future, like this was an Afrofuturism type of novel or work. 
but we're talking about a reconstruction baby. Give us uh, a little bit about Alice's origin story. Yeah, well, she's really more at the edges of Reconstruction because she's born in 1875. So, you know, people argue about uh, Reconstruction when it ended, maybe 1877. But when she is a very young child, she is born into a New Orleans that is in transition in many ways because New Orleans well, first of all, you know, we argue about whether or not New Orleans is the South because it has a strong influence of the Caribbean. So some people just call it a another a northern part of the Caribbean. But New Orleans also had interesting laws because of its connection to the French around interracial relationships. And so scholars are still not really in agreement about what those relationships may have looked like legally. And so the relationship that her mother, who was a formerly enslaved woman, who was not born in New Orleans, but came to New Orleans, the relationship that she had was probably with a white man. And they were probably not legally married, even though she does take his name of Moore. The reason why, as I inform in the text or very early on in the text, is census takers show up and this man is never in the house. And at some point, they just sort of kill him off within the family lore. And there is no mention or or any sort of documentation of an obituary or a, a funeral program or anything that speaks to who this man was, what he did in society or anything. He sort of pops up as an illusion of one who was Negro and who was married to the mother. So Reconstruction in New Orleans also means a sort of reconstruction of what family means. And this line between legal and relationship, however way they wanted to define what marriage was. And that was really always the case with people of African descent anyway, because of that history of enslavement. That wasn't so different, but what was unique for that area, again, was the relationships between Black women in particular and white men. She is born into, of course, a wonderful culture. New Orleans always has been and always will be a location of international influences because of West African enslavement, but also there were what scholars call free people of color and of course, that the European uh, influences of French and Spanish in that particular area. And we also have Latin and indigenous influences in the area as well. So she would capture that in writing. She would want to tease that out in essays on what it meant to be Creole. She would want to tease that out through her being born into a culture of literacy because there were Black newspapers that spoke to the experiences that people had 
and the emergence of schools in that area that pushed back on segregation, but Black children were being educated. Yeah. Um, so with that education, it was something that I thought was really a quite remarkable or extraordinary number, especially considering the the time frame. And this is one thing that I always tell people. And in fact, we had Dr. Brian Mitchell, who is now with the Abraham Lincoln Center, a reconstruction historian. And when he and I talked, you know, it was a time of emerging Black power. And Alice, because of that culture in New Orleans, had an early opportunity to get a college education. And you mentioned there at Strait, which eventually becomes Dillard. How was she pushed or be able to, to go to school? Well, this is the wonderful thing about her mother and the interesting thing around the mystery. Whoever that father was must have been chosen very carefully. He had to have been a person who would have had the means to make sure that her daughters were educated. Think about that. Yeah. The fact that she was born enslaved, she's taken to Texas, where I am now, She understands that she is, in fact, a free woman, and she makes a decision to go to New Orleans. So to stay in the South, for one, but to place herself in a relationship with someone probably intent on one thing, which is that her daughters would have a better life than what she had. So this is very careful thinking and planning of a woman who was barely literate. I was I was so happy and surprised to find a letter written by her to her daughter. So um, she was not fluent in her literacy, but she could write. And I and the letter is understandable. So education was the way in which the race would rise. And all of that, um, that's part of the the politics of respectability. If, if the race is to rise, education, it has to be at the forefront from the smallest of children up into adults who, who may learn their ABC. But she became then that first generation of what we would consider to be an educated Black middle class. Yeah. And the number that stood out to me is in 1890, and this is coming from your wonderful book, that there were only 300 Black men who had received college degrees at that point. And she was one of 30 Black women who had received a college degree at that point. That is just, I mean, when you step back and think about it, that 1890, I mean, just, you know, uh, what would that be? 25 years ago, people were in bondage and it was illegal to read and to learn uh, throughout much of the South for her to achieve that. Talked about the importance of education and that being tied to the rise or the ability or the uplift of the race. She became involved early with the Black Women's Club movement. Talk to me about what the Black Women's Club movement was and who were some uh, seminal figures in it. Yeah, well, Paula Giddings helps us to understand that the majority of 
the black women who were in that part of that movement, those who had a formal education were individuals who were educators. And so you couldn't rely on anyone outside of the race to educate it if you wanted the race to uh, rise above this history of enslavement you had to do it yourself and these black women understood that they as children so for those first generation of teachers whatever that education was that they had one thing that I learned in, in doing this work is that the formal ways in which we think about education now are fairly new. Certainly not at that time. We didn't have school systems and standards for even what it meant to be a teacher in the ways in which we do now. And so her early mentors, I was able to figure this out because that educated class of people who didn't, especially those who did not identify as Creole, which she did not, her own teachers were her mentors. And so um, a woman by the name of Savannah Williams becomes a mentor and they start the Phyllis Wheatley Club of New Orleans. And then those clubs leverage their resources, they network, they join together and they become a national network, and we still see the um, federated clubs and the colored women clubs. They are still in existence today, doing the work of education and just various things that they have in the community. It, it depends, but they they focus on education and also on providing health care for people within the community because they knew that black people would not get, they just simply were not getting the care that they needed in communities. So they opened up clinics and that happened in the city of New Orleans as well. Yeah. And, and so we covered the life of Ida B. Wells, who's early pioneer and um, Mary Church Terrell and, um, Mrs. Booker T. Washington, she has an actual name, but I know that's what she, she'd like to, to go by. What do you think about Alice to those women who are a bit older and, you know, more mature than she is at, at that phase of forming the clubs? What do you think made them see her as someone who could be helpful to the women's club movement? Or was it her more inching her way in or saying, I want to be a part of this? Well, that's where the local becomes really important because she is being mentored and clearly invited in by her own mentor, Savannah Williams. Once these women decide that they are going to network on the national level, then she's able to get on a train and to be there and to become the recording secretary. So these women, all of whom were in positions to make change, some of them are married, some of them were single like she was. She was quite young to be 20 years old and to get on a train and to go up to D.C. and to leave New Orleans. I mean, these are the kinds of, of things that, that we don't think about now. Many of us don't because we can just get on a plane and go someplace. <laughs> 
But to get on a train as a woman and to go where all of these other women are convening and to have conversations and to think about something that is going to have a long-term effect on your race was something amazing. So whoever the women were at the table, some of them whose names we just simply do not know, or we may see them in records once or twice, and we don't know very much about them. All of them were at the table and their presence was significant. Yeah. When I picked the book up, your book, Love Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, I was expecting to read the biography of an artist because I knew that my entry point was on the short stories and the essays that she had written. And, and certainly that is prevalent in the book, her writing or what have you. But she was published pretty early too and sort of putting together a collection of uh, short stories. When How was she when she put together her first collection of short stories? Well, she was 20 years old when she is introduced as a poet, as a, a short essayist, they call them sketches, mm-hmm. and as a fiction writer. But prior to that, she had been writing these journal articles for the AME Church. And then, of course, for the year before that collection was was published, she had been writing for uh, the Women's Era, which was the national organ of this Black Club Women's Movement. So she wrote in many genres from a very early age. I would say certainly by the time she was 18 years old, she was a published writer nationally. And she, um, around this time, she captures the eye of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was the most famous poet or writer, Black writer at that time in the United States. But, well, I'll let you tell it. How did he become aware of of Alice? Well, like so many people, he was a reader (laughs) because he he was literate. And her photo accompanied her writing. And so he reaches out to her by letter. And that's where their relationship begins and blossoms is, is by letter. Mm-hmm. Letters uh, play a, letters and diaries play a, a huge role in, in this book. And I'll get to that. Talk to me about their relationship. Well, it was certainly a complex relationship as many relationships are, I think. He writes to her. She writes back. His question about her intent in the writing that she does, he asks her about propaganda, if she considers herself to be a propaganda writer. And that is certainly a good way to draw her in. Um, Never mind the fact that he's Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So I imagine when she got that letter, she was just, you know, um, screaming and hollering and maybe running around the room because she's gotten this letter from this prominent man who is very well known. And, and no matter what we say about Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was 
a, a talented writer. There's there's no question. He wrote in, in several different genres as well. So that part of their relationship as writers is certainly captured in the letters. But of course, it would become abusive before they got married and it would continue to be abusive. She would try to keep the relationship, but she also was committed to her own family and I think to herself about having a safe place to live and wanted to be treated in a certain way. She knew that she was not going to get that from Paul Lawrence Dunbar and she leaves him, does not divorce him. She leaves him. She leaves him. And so I don't, I don't have a lot of research in terms of separations or divorces or people, women who leave at that time. But I thought that that was, uh, she showed an extraordinary sense of agency to leave. We're talking about a relationship that begins with sexual abuse, right? Rape. And then there's mental, physical, and emotional abuse throughout the marriage. And she leaves. So she, she, to me, and from your book shows an extraordinary amount of agency, like you said, to get on a train and, you know, go from Louisiana to, to, to the North, to DC, and then to be in a relationship that's not serving her, I think was showed an extraordinary sense of agency, but also quite modern. Um, I want to get to more of her relationships because she left us a whole lot to talk about there, but I don't want to, <laughs> I want to, dig in a little bit on her writing. How does writing play into her activism? You talked about working for Women's Era, writing for Women's Era, which was the uh, journalist, the journal organ uh, for the women's clubs. But how does her writing serve her activism? Well, it gives voice to Black women, uh, which is extremely important because Women were challenged in having a voice. They did not have the right to vote nationally, which, of course, she would fight for that as well. But um, certainly not, certainly not in the South. And so she is one of the few voices that we actually see represented in the women's era, which is based in Boston. But she was one of the few Southern voices represented. There's a woman from Texas. There's someone from Virginia as well. And I think they are the only three in the the um, issues that I have access to, because that's the other unfortunate thing is that there are pieces here and there of those issues. But it was really an important newspaper because it was an important journal because it spoke to these women's tenacity it spoke to their ability to be able to raise funds to to get this paper printed and distributed, which meant that they had to solicit businesses to have ads, which was, you know, there are departments that newspapers have dedicated to that now. It spoke to their ability to write as literate people who were had an awareness of what was going on around them and to form opinion and to shape opinion within Black communities and for Black women. It spoke to their ability to form a network 
across the states. I mean, to have these voices in conversation from Louisiana to Texas, to Virginia, to Boston, to New York. I mean, for goodness sakes, we have the internet that helps us to do that now, but these women were doing this in the 1890s. So um, it really shows black women's ability to take very little to have been underestimated by men of their own race and by people of other races but to say, look at what I can do. Yeah, thank you for that. So she wrote short stories. She also, I know, wrote plays in the educational sense of where, when she was an educator. She wrote essays and she wrote columns. Now, at a Google glance of her, if you just type in Alice Dunbar Nelson, she's associated with the Harlem Renaissance. But the Harlem Renaissance is in the 1920s. And just looking, just you, you just stated a while ago that she was first published in, I guess it would be 1895 when she's 20 years old. How many Black women or women, period? And, and I, I don't know if you have an exact number, but was that common? Well, it wasn't common for Black women, but she was not the only one who was publishing, certainly during that period of time in terms in terms of of black women but to place her in the Harlem Renaissance is actually an era and i see that over and over again right and she wrote about the Harlem Renaissance but she wasn't necessarily a Harlem Renaissance writer she was a late victorian writer black victorian writer and so her work represents you asked me the question about her work, um, her writing as as protests, as political. And we see that very early on in all of her work from the articles that we have access to that she wrote for journals in those editorials because she is speaking about Black experience and the challenges that Black people have in, at times, offering ways to move past those challenges through the work of organizers. This is very important because she is an early organizer. Then we see her later on in her fiction writing, where she's speaking specifically about the treatment of women and sometimes children in this work, in, in this fiction. And then women's empowerment, even in her poetry. So she actually becomes a predecessor of the individuals, the younger people who are writing during the Harlem Renaissance. And so when her voice is present as a journalist, then she is able to write about their work and some of the favorites and people and situations that we may not know about, but for her recording of um, the plays and the fiction and so on that emerged at that time. As she's writing and you just articulated that, you know, things that she's seeing that are political show up in her, her writings and also issues about women's place and uh, money and uh, how precarious finances could be for women who were not educated or not employed at that time. She writes about all of those things. And I urge people to 
really check out her short stories, you for me, it felt like it was someone who was writing today and not someone who's writing in the 1890s or the 1900s. She's really advanced in that sense. So some of the issues, big issues during that time, we talked about education. Talk to me a little bit more about suffrage and women's suffrage and where the Black Women's Club uh, specifically was involved in the challenges they would have had with the white women who were involved in club and suffrage work. Yeah, well, they were in the thick of it. Black women had always been, before we really start to see a suffrage movement where we get the march in 1913 and so on, Black women, when when their husbands uh, or male relatives are able to vote, they travel with them to vote and they take up arms in case anybody shows up. <laughs> and they want to start something. Those Black women are the ones who are outside of those courthouses who are ready. And I just love learning about Black women in the different ways, whether it was the pen or the gun or both, mm-hmm. the ways in which they were protesters and organizers and resistors in society. And this would have been even before she was born. So we see then this educated class being able to, as they pull their resources and meet part of their national agenda is to push for the right to vote. Black women were not always welcomed into the circles of, as they call their, um, their sisters, white women. So that did not deter them to keep arguing and fighting for the right to vote. And of course they would get it. Now the challenge would be in the South and we still deal with that challenge. Students often ask me, what is the voting rights act? Mm -hmm. That is one of the things in which they were pushing for is that there would not be any sort of deterrence that exists now for people to be able to vote freely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so many issues that these women and and men, we'll get to some of them, were fighting for then, we're fighting for now. She leaves Paul Lawrence Dunbar and uh, goes to Delaware to, and she begins teaching and she looks to um, uh, further her education. But during that time, the Howard School, not Howard University, the Howard School, which is in Wilmington, Delaware, correct? It's Wilmington, yes. Delaware. Mm-hmm. The principal there, her boss, Edwina Cruz, am I saying it's Edwina Cruz? Yes. Edwina Cruz and Alice have more than the relationship of, of principal and teacher, boss and employee. Uh, talk to me about their relationship. Well, they certainly have a relationship that is an intimate one. So it is intimate personally that people at the time do not know about. Uh, And when I say people, I mean people of Black Wilmington, because Wilmington was just like the South. I mean, it, it had that history of enslavement and segregation. I can't say that there are not women that 
that um, Edwina Cruz lived with because she did live with several women throughout her life. She owned her own home in in, um, in Wilmington. I can't say that those women did not know. I also cannot say that those women were not involved in their own same-sex relationships. That house is is a very curious sight to me. But what we began to learn about through reading these archives and these diaries is that Black women did have same-sex relationships. And so while many of them may not have been known to other Black women, we certainly have a sense through Alice Delmar Nelson's diaries that she makes a very clear reference that when they get together for these conferences, there's more than just planning happening. Uh, <laughs> there's a daytime and there's a nightlife. So uh, <laughs> people, you know, sometimes really don't want to have that conversation and think about that life pre Harlem Renaissance, but it certainly was um, pre Harlem Renaissance. This has been since the beginning of time. So the fact that they had this relationship that was not known, we do know this by her family members. Um, at least the children didn't know. If if her sister or her mother knew, I doubt it very seriously. But they were able to carry on, I think, very easily in front of people who may not have asked certain kinds of questions because Edwina Cruz was her boss because she was known to help people financially. She was a pillar of the community. She had her own home. So what could have gone on in that home, people would not have known about because there wasn't going to be any surveillance by anyone else. And they had their own personal relationship, but they also had a professional one that went on for quite a number of years. So with, with Alice goes to Cornell and receives her advanced education, which helps her to really establish a curriculum for the Howard School um, there in Wilmington. And when I was looking at that curriculum, I'm like, wow, you know, if kids had that now today, they would be doing really well. She's really, she and I think others, I don't know if that would have been that unusual for the way that people were thinking about education during that that period. Um, so she picks up her education, she betters herself, and she also marries again, Henry Callis, who was several years her junior, which again is defying norms. What did people think about that? Well, that was the only scandal. So <laughs> the fact that her um, her bosses, her lover, and some of these other things that are happening, she leaves Paul Lawrence um, Dunbar and is not there when he dies, but she's collecting his royalties. I mean, like none of these other things that people could have <laughs> been writing letters about was the talk of the town. But when she married Callis, that was the talk of the town. And it was simply because he was younger. He was an educated um, young man. He came from a great family. There was no other reason for people to have any question or conversation about it 
other than the fact, and who cares about a woman's happiness, by the way, uh, the, the, this is not to be considered because she was, she most certainly would have been happy with him, particularly compared to the, the tumultuous relationship that she had with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. But that was not people's concern. It really was the fact that she was married to a younger man. Had he been older, no question, no comment. But younger, we have something to consider here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I and again, you know, as I'm reading all of this, and this is, again, at Reconstruction and after and during the period of, of what's known as the Nadir and there's lots of lynchings and there's just a whole lot going on. She is really someone who is a person of her time, but a, ahead of her time at the simultaneously. She's she's doing the, all of those things. You mentioned that she uh, in the book that she retains the Dunbar name and she reads his poetry and, you know, she carries that name even after she when she divorces Callis and remarries. She keeps the name Alice Dunbar Nelson. But she, you can use a name or to get into places, but to have the eye and ear to be able to write Arturo Schomburg, James Weldon Johnson, W.E.B. Du Bois, Mary Church Terrell, you're not using a name to be in the company of those people. What talents did Alice have as an organizer that stood out to them that, that she could call on them and, and, and write them frequently? Yeah, well, um, Mary Church Terrell or Molly was, she had inherited various properties and money from her father, who was very well known in Memphis, mm -hmm. the church family. And so she owned the home that they were renting from in Washington, D.C. So they had been neighbors. I do not get the sense something happens between the two of them. And, and this is this is something to be stated as well, that just because these women were in organizations doesn't mean that they liked each other. Right. It just means that they worked together to get some things done because the race was important. So something happens between the two of them that make it so that they are not friends who are having tea every um, evening or on the weekends. And I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but within these things, it could be any petty little thing. Um, sometimes colorism factors its way into it. Sometimes it could be um, family because of illegitimacy. One person's from the South, another person's from the North, any kind of politics. She played those political games very well, I think. So irrespective of the name of Dunbar, she was able to develop long-term relationships because when she meets Paul Lawrence Dunbar, she's already on the scene. Yeah. So he is marrying up as well. <laughs> let's, let's just be clear about that. He is marrying a woman who has an established reputation. And when it's not really until she dies and we see what people write about her in the black newspapers that we really understand why she was beloved. 
I wish we had recordings of her speaking engagements, but it's very clear from descriptions that people give that they found her ability to speak to be compelling. And so that's why she was often called in to make presentations on any number of issues, whether it was for war or for peace, whether it was um, to push for women to have the right to vote, or it was presentation of Paul Lawrence Dunbar's work, whatever it was, she was a charming woman that people like to have at the table, and she had an ability to present um, the theme and the call for action in a way that made people feel like they wanted her to be involved. Part of the title of your book is The Respectable Life. What does respectable mean? Well, she defines it, I think, that you have touched on that. For Alice Dunbar Nelson, it meant that she had a public position that people found respectable. So even though she married three times, that she was smart enough not to divorce her first husband and be able to keep his name and to present herself herself as his widow, that she was not known to have at all. She was not known to have relationships with women so that people knew about, let's say, W.E.B. Du Bois's affairs, but they did not know about her affairs <laughs> mm-hmm. right, right. <laughs> because she would have been <laughs> treated quite differently in society. She walk the line of discretion very well. The fact that uh, she was invited to be in a number of organizations, Delta Sigma Theta, sorority being one of them, means, of course, that she was a woman that was perceived in public as being respectable. She kept her private life private. And that was a win for her. So she redefines, I think, um, navigates very well what respectability means for her. But as long as society, if they were not forced to think about some of the private bits and pieces, then they were okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, so what I read is discretion that you know that you know she had a public life and a private life, and they they they're not all living in the same place. I don't think she would have been on Instagram uh, going live uh, about no. what she's doing at home. I don't think so. <laughs> but, but at the same time, she did write uh, a lot about, uh, she was very open in her, her diaries, which is mm-hmm. how you got a lot of this information. Before I get to that, though, I want to ask just about just sort of her talent and being seen as someone who could be useful. James Weldon Johnson, who I think at that time was the president of the NAACP and others, and Alice was one of them, they visited the White House to see President Harding. Um, what was that meeting about, and why was Alice there? Well, it was about lynchings. So the anti-lynching bill, which was only very recently passed, after, you know, after so many years of not hearing or seeing stories of people being lynched in the ways in which they were during that time. We can argue about how lynching looks now, but 
this was a real fear in communities across the country, particularly in the South, which is why the NAACP was founded, quite frankly. But even though she had been born in the South and hadn't lived in the South for a number of years, it didn't matter because Black people could have been lynched or they could have been shot or they could have been abused by the police. She files a report about her own abuse by a, an interaction with a police officer while she's married to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So this violence against Black people was a problem that Black folks, whether they were writing about it in fiction or whatever their role in society was, of course, Johnson was also a fiction writer. These individuals said, let's use our voice as public leaders and writers to take this to the White House and see if we can get some action, see if we can get some support, some protection from the president. Of course, they do not, unfortunately. But this does record how this group got together and got organized and did something that, you know, Johnson feels seems to feel a little bit uncomfortable having this discussion in the White House with the president of the United States. So we get to see the vulnerability also of this group of people that we revere today. But they do it anyway. They pu- they push through their nervousness and they do it. And she records it in her diary. Yeah. Speaking of diary, it's a great lead in. Um, in her diaries, uh, her diary and letters, there's a couple of things. She's careful in public and her public writing to not criticize black people. Right. <laughs> Yes. But in her diary, she's she's <laughs> being open and her letters being open. And I'm I'm actually OK with that. Um, but also in her letters, uh, whilst, again, she's publicly not talking about her relationships or her feelings or any of those things. But her letters and diaries are very uh, you wrote the book. I mean, it's clear about her passions and who she likes and her fluidity and what have you. Did she know that you were going to read her diaries one day? Because it, it seems like she she wanted people to know more about her her life. I I absolutely believe that she did want people to know about her life because she first of all she keeps all of this material, and she has enough time. She knows that she's dying by the time that she dies. She she knows that she's dying. And there can be any number of reasons why. But uh, I mean, the fact that she smokes, the fact that she's been um, physically um, in a a violent situation and and what the attacks on her body has, she doesn't have enough money to be able to eat a a nice and regular uh, diet. So there are any number of reasons why she is chronically sick. Mm -hmm. She does the work anyway. But she knows that she's dying by the by the time we can see that in the last letters that she writes to her niece, who is a librarian who keeps all the material and does the work of making sure that that work is not thrown away, but that it is sold to a library. So there is absolutely no way in the world that I would ever believe that this woman did not want people to know about her life because she had ample enough time to get rid of 
all of that stuff. And I suspect that there are some things that she actually did get rid of because these diaries are not consistent over the years. I think that some of those diaries may have been thrown out. Um, there are some holes in letters um, and correspondence, but there are there's enough juicy stuff there that um, help us to know about the exciting and fascinating life that she led. Yeah, one of the um, one of the more fascinating meetings to me uh, in sort of Black history is the meeting with. Um, James uh, Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, and others. Uh, I want to say Dr. Kenneth Clark might have been there, and others who paid a visit to President Kennedy and his brother, the Attorney General, about a lot of the same issues: police brutality, lynchings, and uh, the advancement of Black people. And and with Alice in her life and agency as a writer and being someone who's also sexually fluid and Lorraine Hansberry being queer and all of those things. And I started to think, you know, there's some people, like if I, if I were looking at jazz music, you can see the line between Louis Armstrong to Dizzy Gillespie to Miles Davis to Wynton Marcellus. What is the line from Alice Dunbar to whoever, right? Either as activists or, or writers who are her, her children? Well, her children, I think, are the Harlem Renaissance writers. Her peers and mentors, she had a, and I was surprised to find this out, she had a friendly and respected relationship with W.E.B. Du Bois, which I'm able to do some writing about in this text. She brings out a side of Du Bois that I do not see in his writings with other people. He tries to cheer her up when she's on her deathbed. And he just had a loving relationship with the entire family. He makes reference to her sister, Leela, who was her best friend, really, and the niece, Pauline, who's, by the way, named after Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So her peer group and I think her her mentor group were these individuals to to some degree. She did know Booker T. Washington, but the person that she corresponded with the most uh, whose respect that she wanted was that of Du Bois. And of course, Du Bois is older. He is of the Victorian age as well. But then, of course, there are her peers that she writes about of Arturo uh, Schoenberg, which so many people have overlooked. And I was really surprised to see because I went to the Schoenberg and there they were, her letters writing to him to get this information. Very well respected. He visits with her when she is in Philadelphia, which is where she dies, of course. But So she's rooted out of a Black community of New Orleans, influenced by Creole life there. And her children, I would say, are the Harlem Renaissance writers because she so well respects them. She talks about Langston Hughes and Conte Cullen, who are two individuals that she writes about consistently. But she moves between 
the artists and the activists, the people who didn't write the literature, but the women who were in the trenches, who were doing the work in the community. So we can't find her in just one place. She occupied multiple spaces within the community. Yeah, she's dynamic for sure. Du Bois, I guess for maybe a a journal or something that he was editing, I I can't recall right now, but he asked her for a quote and she says, uh, organize, organize, organize back to him as sort of, you know, what I I guess what what people in the race should be doing. When I look at, you know, the issues that we are facing today as we're recording librarians under attack, the voting rights being rolled back, still talking about mob violence. You see it in January 6th. And there was some march with the some white supremacists just yesterday in Mother's Day. And I look at, you know, her saying, organize, organize, organize. And you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned that you know, she and perhaps Mary Church Terrell did not get along, but they still worked together. There's an age gap between Du Bois and her that is there, and and people are able to work across regions. Not that there's a metric or score. Are we, Black people, better organized in, in 1900 or in 2023? And what can we learn? Yeah, I think that we... So what is still present, I was going to say that we organize differently, but I'm not even sure that that's true. What is still present is the local organizing and community leaders. So the kind of work that we see happening locally where people may have a center and they, and they have youth programs or They say, let's get together and get a bus out here to help with people who may not have insurance and so that they can get some sort of health assessment and get the information that they need. These things are still happening within our communities. And I say that because I'm I'm doing this interview in Third Ward of Houston, which is where University of Houston is situated in the Department of African-American Studies that was founded in 1969 based on protests. So I know that that work is still happening because I meet with people pretty often who are, are doing things to help the community. So the spirit of activism is still present. And there are national coalitions. If we look at how people galvanized, how they got organized for the last national election. And so that's where it looks different because just getting organized with black women isn't going to move the needle as much as it would, including Asian and Latinas into that organization because that's the way in which you move the needle in a place like Arizona. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, but this is what these women were doing on the national level as well, but it's, but it looks a little bit different, but the need and the call is still there. Yeah. The need and the call is definitely still there. And I think one of the more um, striking moments in your book is with the, women uh, of Delta Sigma Theta in 
I want to say it was still early on in 1913 or 14 and during the suffrage march. I mean, when the organization, the Deltas, uh, is still a very young organization, uh, mm-hmm. not very old and still having that agency to organize and march. And, you know, as a member of the <laughs> Divine Nine, it is a, I think, a sort of weakness in terms of uh, I don't see us doing enough of that in places like Florida and uh, Texas there with your governor or even here in Georgia with Abbott or what have you. And and I will uh, leave that alone so I can still go to frat meeting and all of the things. Uh, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that there. Why did you want to um, write this and how long did it take you to write it? Well, it took me 10 years. And part of that 10 years was sending it out to, I don't even remember how many presses. I was trying to remember the other day of and getting feedback, feedback that was discouraging at some point of, of saying that it, it shouldn't be a book and so on. And me saying, well, I'll just write something else and come back to it because I always had another writing project. It became the final push during COVID. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote another book, See Me Naked, Black Women in Pleasure, Defining Pleasure during the interwar era, which became really a sequel to that because I wanted to think about what did it mean if Black women were not focusing on the community? What joy and what pleasure does one get out of that? We we can see it, I think, in, in some clear ways with women who are working as activists. But Alice Dunbar Nelson figured out how to have a life outside of activism, even when she went to a conference. And I really wanted to explore that. So it becomes a 10-year project because I'm also thinking through, I am getting older as a woman, technology is changing and, and things are becoming more accessible, like the the Black newspapers that were not accessible when I started this project. So I was able to read more about who she was as a child and also about how she contributed to society as a journalist in those papers. It was a 10-year journey that was worth taking. Yeah, definitely worth taking. I love the book. Uh, And that book is Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. In that sort of writing and just things that, you know, you came across and studied through various archives, how important are these Black archives, archives of, of Black artists and, and politicians and what have you, and, and them being accessible? Well, extremely important. If her niece had not been a librarian, I shudder to think what would have happened to all of that material. She could have done like, I, I'm sure we'll never know how many people have taken things when their family members die and, and throw them into the dumpster so that they can clean the house out and move on. And it's been a project of mine, and I'm not the only one who has who has my ear to the community and saying, wait a minute, don't throw that out. So, you, you know, there are people, I mentioned that there are Black clubs 
across the country that have these chapters will wear those materials. They tend to be in somebody's garage. I know a couple of houses now where those things are in the garage, but goodness sakes, people get these things out of your garages. Work with a library, especially when somebody knocks on your door and provides you with the resources to have those materials archived because Black women's voices, we are already silenced in this world everywhere and anywhere. But this is the one place in which we cannot be silenced. Once it's written down and once it's given space, then it's there. Uh, So I, I certainly encourage people before it's too late, don't leave it to your children to make the decision, get those materials into the hands of a a library and get that material preserved. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning uh, that you discovered Alice as a student at Dillard and Alice went to Strait, which became, I want to say it became Dillard. What, is, is it Strait, New Orleans, then Dillard, or is it Strait to Dillard? But it, it's... Um, so, yeah. So New Orleans University merges with straight. Um, it goes from straight university to college to university or it's, it's it's the other way around. I could never tell why they kept changing it from college to university and when they actually made the change. But I think she actually went to straight college and then it becomes university. Then it becomes college. Then it merges. And then it becomes Dillard University sometime in the 1900s. Why is Dillard special? Well, Dillard University is special for one because it's a historically black university. And so it has always had the mission of educating black people from its very beginning. You know, people sort of want to push away from that, from saying that, but that's the way for those of us who are Black, who graduated from HBCUs, that we tend to think about it because that's why we go there, because we want the experience Mm -hmm. of being around people who look like us, where we don't have to explain certain things about what we're looking for and what we're hoping for, and to begin those relationships that will last a lifetime. That does not mean that those institutions are not open to people who are not black because, in fact, they are. But that's what makes them special. Why is Dillard University special? One of the main reasons is because it's in New Orleans. It's a jewel of Seventh Ward of New Orleans. Yeah, It is not too far from where people travel to the the music festival that happens every year. And, of course, we've had some wonderful wonderfully talented people who have graduated from Dillard University. It's a small institution and people then are able to know each other's names. And so that was another thing that I learned about Alice Dunbar Nelson, that she had graduated. I I knew that, I think it may have been in the biography that preceded whatever piece of work that I read by her. But that she had graduated from what is now, what was then Dillard University. So it, it just, you know, it, it brings a certain level of pride as well. Before we wrap up with our, our closing questions, I have one more thing about the book. How is the book 
been received and who is reading uh, the book? The audience is quite wide. I have been very pleased to have the support of Delta chapters across the country, especially when when it was released. I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Delta Sigma Theta does have an arts and letters, which is uh, um, one of the committees, national committees of the organization that's that's been attached to the organization for years. It's over 100 years now, now that the sorority has certainly been around. But we also have book clubs. And so my book was one of the featured texts. And so the support of my SARS has been extremely important. And I thought about them as I wrote. I try to write for an audience that is not an academic audience, that you don't have to have a master's or PhD. But if you like to read, then you'd love to hear about her work but also an audience that should be teaching her work in their classrooms. Because again, I feel like it was so unfortunate that I would get to college in New Orleans and not have known anything about this woman. So it's, it's general and specific. Yeah. No, listen, the book is wonderful. And I agree with you. I think it is written in a way that a lay person or book club or, you know, lots of people could read it and enjoy it. And uh, this is really an extraordinary person. And I I am surprised, too, that I I hadn't really I don't think I'd heard of it before, let alone really engaged with her work or life before the past year. So I want to thank you for that. We close with a couple of questions that we ask all guests. And uh, the first one is, what does it mean to live well? Wow. Well, I wrote a book about that. It it means really to think not about as much about what you've earned in life for your material wealth, but to think about your happiness. So focusing on what brings you pleasure as a person. And that doesn't have to be sexual. It can be your engagement with nature, as we see Alice Dunbar Nelson, who loved nature, but she also loved to write and she loved to meditate. She was very much so a spiritual person. And so I think that there is much to learn. It is not something that we can answer in a day. But it evolves because we evolve as individuals. So that's what I would say for me. Yeah, thank you for that. And and, uh, and I agree. Um, Alice, I think it's, it's The Fisherman of Past Christiane. It's one of her short stories, the, the writing and the way she describes the shore and the scenery or yes. whatever. She brings a yeah. lot of, of, of detail and vivid detail to her writing. And you can see that she is someone who is experiencing and and living and observing and then pushing back to us through her writing a a full life. Now, New Orleans uh, is the city of of music and Louisiana is a rich musical state. And if you were to tell, let's say there, we found some planet and there's a, a state and some people coming to visit Louisiana and you could put together a playlist of, you know, three, four, five, whatever it is, artists uh, that really represent 
the best of Louisiana's music to you and give it to those aliens? Who would be on that playlist? Wow. Well, I would probably have to start with gospel because that's that's certainly strong within my life. If you're driving around New Orleans, you'll certainly see any number of, of black churches. One of the best known would be um, Paul Morton. So mm-hmm. his is on the playlist, my own personal playlist. Because I'm a graduate of Dillard, I would say not to Ellis Marcellus and and um, then not to Wynton Marcellus, his son. Um, his father is a graduate of Dillard University. Say who, what makes it special. That's one of the things that makes it special, right? And then I would have to push into bounce music. So Big Frida. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Most certainly, and some of the earlier bounce music musicians. So, um, you know, we're still dropping it like it's hot and all that um, bouncing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And New Orleans and some other songs that I would name that you probably haven't heard of before. But if you put in early <laughs> New Orleans bounce music, you will find them mystical. Okay, um, yeah. No, but, listen, yeah. I know mystical. So yeah, we at the but, parlay and all blue live like Alice Dunbar <laughs> Nelson. We're doing our activism work, but we live a full life too. So mm-hmm. <laughs> mystical, <laughs> um, uh, Big Frida and, you know, Tank and the Bangers. Yeah, we know we mm-hmm. Black Boy Gears. Yes. Yeah, so we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're with all of that. Now, I will <laughs> I will um, have to have to say that when you mentioned gospel and mentioned New Orleans, you didn't you didn't call Sister Mahalia Jackson, and I know it, the, the, her statue's right there in Louis Armstrong Park. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to add her on onto the playlist. Uh, just take a liberty yeah. and add her on. And I would I would certainly say Louis Armstrong. I just didn't go that far back. I guess yeah. I was thinking more about um, who I heard growing sure. up and Paul Morton and, and these other folks were within my lifetime. But we have so many legends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and no offense, I mean, like we. Oh, we yeah. Did. Fast Domino. Everybody. I mean, um, mm-hmm. uh, Alan Tucson. I mean, it's it's just yeah, you can't. I mean, right. you can't. It's, it's You could go on and on and on. One more thing before we wrap up, and I want to urge everyone to get this book by uh, Dr. Tara Green, Tara T. Green, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. I will say for me, Mark, I don't actually like to rank art in that sense, but I will tell you that this book was a book for me that every page was like a wow, a no, she didn't, or it opened up a, it really affirmed Solomon's proverb, there's nothing new under the sun in, in Ecclesiastes. There's so much is here, but at the same time, she was, she's a person of her time and ahead of her time, and, and you will not be disappointed. But back to New Orleans real quick before we wrap up. Do you go back often or ever get back? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. My family's still there. So, yeah. Okay. So of the New Orleans sort of cycle of festivals, Mardi Gras, uh, Super Sunday with the Indians, Essence Fest, Jazz Fest, uh, Bayou Classic, what's what's your favorite um, to to go back to or experience? Oh, wow. That's that's difficult. I mean, Jazz Fest and um, and Mardi Gras are distinctly New Orleans, there's there's histories there. Um, 
but certainly Essence Festival is quite special that that doesn't have the the longevity of um, the other two and it is brought in right right? but it's but it's in New Orleans but it's it's brought in by um, people who are not of New Orleans the Essence Festival but it has this beauty because you can go there and see black folks doing all sorts of wonderful things, right? I mean, yeah. like there are these different workshops that are happening and book signings, and then there's the music. So um, those would those would be my three top ones. But maybe I would start with Jazz Fest and then Mardi Gras and then Essence. All right. Very good. Well, Dr. Green, we certainly appreciate you. And for everyone else, uh, we again, we urge you to get the book, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. We inver- we always urge you to buy from independent booksellers first, Black, Black booksellers specifically. Trust me, my family is keeping Amazon afloat by themselves. They, they, they will be okay if, if you don't get this book from them. But at the same time, if that's where you get it, get it from them because it, it is a wonderful book. We ask you to listen, like, share, and engage with the, the podcast. And we appreciate you. And if you want to support our work at the Parlay and All Blue further, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. The show runs off of coffee and books. If we don't buy coffee, we will buy books. And we thank you. And uh, we'll see you the next time. Thank you. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash parlay in all blue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at the parlay in all blue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media. And thanks, be well, and we out.